This audio is from the Axis Church and is part of our sermon series, The Reason We're Here, a study of the book of Acts. For more information, go to theaxischurch.org. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you guys. So good to be with you. My name is Jacob, one of the pastors here at the Axis Thrilled to be having the opportunity to jump into God's Word and see what He has for us. So many new faces. If you're new with us this week, in the past couple of weeks, welcome. Thanks for giving us a shot. I know it can be a terrifying thing to step into a church building where you don't know anybody for the first time. So I just pray that you would feel welcomed. And uh, my prayer for all of us this morning is that the Lord would encourage our hearts that through his Holy Spirit, that our weary souls would be refreshed through his truth and through his presence. So I'm excited to see how he responds to that prayer. This morning, we're continuing our journey through the book of Acts that brings us to Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. Last week, we unpacked the most famous story of a spiritual conversion in the history of the world where Jesus saves the murderer of Christians, the terrorist, the Pharisee, Saul. In our text today, the storyline shifts abruptly as our author Luke employs a writing technique that modern day authors call multiple narrative threads. This is where there's a back and forth ping-ponging between multiple storylines where the the two storylines are both serving to move the major plot line forward. And though what we have in Acts is absolutely historical narrative and not fiction, our author Luke, the, the wise physician, is recording the first 32 years of the Christian church in an intelligent and intellectual way as he weaves these two stories together and unpacks for us the explosion and the conception of the Christian church through Jesus. Chapter 9 through chapter 12 is where these two narrative threads are woven together. The the two storylines, two men radically changed by Jesus, two men who saw the risen Jesus with their eyes, who interacted with the risen Jesus, two Christian apostles who have had a greater impact on the growth and health and spreading of the message of Jesus and the Christian church than probably any other men in the history of the world besides Jesus, Peter and Paul. Today, our, our story transitions from Paul back to Peter, where we'll see two very brief stories of miraculous physical healing of two Christian disciples beyond the region of Jerusalem. And in light of the, the heaviness that I and so many of you guys have experienced this week in the midst of the tragedy and the darkness and the evil and the death and the hatred and the racism and the injustice. We stand as Christ followers knowing that there's a a root to the problem and the, the root to the problem is and has always been sin. And the only answer for any of the tragedy or suffering or hatred or racism or injustice is Jesus. 
And so we turn to him, but at the same time, we acknowledge that there is tremendous repentance and love and words and works and the joining together of brothers and sisters in Christ from all races, of course, indeed, and this needs to happen in the coming days. But at the same time, this morning, there is tremendous hope and peace and comfort to be experienced by all that no man can take away, that no death can end, that no injustice can thwart, and it's only available through Jesus. So (laughs) we're turning to him together as a people this morning, and I know that he has encouragement and power and truth for us in his word. In that direction, let me pray, and let's pray together, and then we'll jump in to Acts chapter 9. Glad you're here. Um, gosh, I, I know that he has something special for us in his word. So let's pray. God, our father, sin is the problem. Sin separates us from you and leaves us longing for something that we can't find on our own. And you sent Jesus to intervene, to make a way to invite us into friendship to adopt us, to fix our sin problem. That's the main point. That's why we're gathered. That's why we sing. That's why we clap. That's why we say amen. That's why we go to your word. So pray that you would send your spirit to do what only your Holy Spirit can do, God. And that is to Make your word alive and active and penetrating through the mess of this life, Christian or non-Christian, through the chaos of this world, through the loudness of our fear and our anxiety and our brokenness, and penetrate to our hearts to open our eyes to see you, Jesus, for how good you are and how much you have taken care of our sin problem and how much you love us. And that will change people And that will be the change that we all need to see. And so as we see physical healings in the stories today, there is a common response where people see you clearly and respond and believe you and worship you. So I pray that we would see you clearly and respond and believe you and worship you this morning for your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. All right. Grab your Bibles, your devices, and let's take a look. The chunk of text is Acts 9, verses 32 through 43. Turn there if you don't mind, if you want to reference it as we go through. Uh, We're looking at Acts 32, Acts 9, 32 through 43. Let's start in verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Joppa. So Peter is on a a pastoral tour. He's visiting the communities of Christians that are beyond the city of Jerusalem. Uh, The majority of these communities being comprised of the Jews who have fled Jerusalem in order to avoid the imprisonment and the death and the persecution that was taking place within Jerusalem. Here we see the word saint used to describe the disciples of Jesus for only the second time in the New Testament. This Greek word for saint is hagios. It literally means the most holy thing, or when describing a people, the most holy people. Only through Jesus is it possible for sinners like us to be called the most holy people. 
So Christian, every time we encounter this word saint, would we be deeply encouraged at the truth and reality that through faith in Jesus, our sins have been wiped away and God, our father eternally. And this very morning, in spite of the sins of this week or this morning, looks at us and he sees clean, perfect, sinless, holy saints, just like Jesus. This is the truth and power of the gospel for us, even in this moment in our sin. Amen. Verses 33 and 34. Let's take a look. There Peter found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Words that this man had not heard for a very long time. And immediately he rose We're not given any insight into how Peter was led to this man. The insight that we're given is that this man was a part of the Christian community and that he was helpless and that he had been suffering physically for years and years. And when Peter says the words with unwavering faith, Jesus Christ heals you, this could very well have been interpreted as Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah in this very moment is healing you. Peter made no mistake about what was happening in this moment. He knew where the power was coming from. He wanted the man being healed to to have no mistake about what was happening to him. And Luke, our author, wants to make it clear to us that the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, was miraculously physically healing this man's body. Jesus is alive and active in this story. He's alive and active in this room right now. And we see compassion and mercy flowing from the heart of Jesus to heal this man physically, miraculously. Verse 35. And look at this response. Beautiful. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Awesome. Here we see God's plan continuing to unfold. More sinners becoming saints, believing in Jesus, hearing and responding to the gospel of Jesus that was being proclaimed by this man, by Peter, and by the Christians in this region. Beautiful. Verse 36. Now there was in Joppa, also close to Jerusalem, a different region, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. So she was known by two names, to the Jews, Tabitha, to the Greeks, Dorcas. It was common for Jews living amongst Greeks to have two names, a Jewish name and a Greek name. And it says about Tabitha that she was full of good works and acts of charity. What a beautiful way to be remembered when you die death wasn't the end. Let's look at verse 37. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Beyond Jerusalem in Jewish towns like Joppa, the normal period between death and burial was three days. And as was custom in Joppa, they're taking the dead body of their beloved friend Tabitha to an upper room in the house for a period of visitation and mourning for family and friends. Verse 38. Since Lydda was near Joppa, Luke gives us commentary here on the geography, about 10 miles away, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. 
Now, by this time in this region, there was no shortage of stories about the hundreds and hundreds of people who had been physically healed by Peter and the other Christian apostles. Earlier in Acts chapter 5, we even learned that people were carrying the sick into the streets, (laughs) that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. This is crazy. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick, and they were all healed. Magnificent. The disciples in Joppa knew Peter was in the area on his pastoral tour, so of course they sent for him. It was their last hope for their dead friend. Verse 39. So Peter responds, Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Peter enters the house, encounters a group of mourning widows. This is a scene that is thick with emotion and sadness and heaviness. The widows show Peter the clothing Tabitha had lovely sewn and provided for them. So on display is the fruit of Tabitha's good works and acts of charity that characterized her in verse 36. Tunics and robe were the most basic essential material needs of people in this culture. And to not have the ability to provide for yourself the most basic of material needs indicated severe poverty and helplessness and desperation. And the fact that these women were widows, it highlights the importance of that word acts of charity from verse 36 used to describe Tabitha's good works. This word charity indicates that Tabitha had means of some sort. She had extra money and she was sacrificially giving her money and giving herself to solve the tangible need of desperate people who were helpless Widows with no husbands or family to care for them were culturally some of the most helpless and vulnerable people in that society. And throughout the Old and New Testaments, one of the most reoccurring themes regarding the character of God is that his heart beats with compassion and mercy for those in society who are the most vulnerable and helpless. And so Let's pause for a moment in the text and all of us, myself included, consider hopefully a probing question for those of us who are Christ followers. And here's the question. If you died today, would people say something similar about you that was said about Tabitha? Would you be remembered for your good works and charity? Would you be remembered for your selflessness and heart to help the most vulnerable and helpless people around you? This is a troubling and convicting question for me personally, because I doubt greatly if I died today that the highlights of my obituary would be good works and charity. And this is troubling. I, I, I don't want that to be the case. And so if you feel a similar way, my prayer is that Jesus would help change us. As Christ followers, good works and charity should not pop up occasionally as tiny blips in the chronological unfolding of our storylines. 
good works and charity should be two of the most predominant characteristics that we embody as Christ followers, not because we're trying to get God's attention or because we're trying to earn brownie points from God or climb a ladder to God or buy into the lie of Christian karma where we need to do a certain amount of good things to weigh out the scale of the sins that we've committed. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of religion and legalism and moralism that has saturated our churches and our city and our region for decades and decades. This is the gospel of Jesus. Consider it. The gospel of Jesus, the way that he has and continues to love and serve and provide for us in our moments of greatest need and helplessness and vulnerability should be progressively motivating us to love and serve and provide for others in the same way as an obedient response. Consider 1 John 4, 19. We love because Jesus first loved us when we hated him, according to Ephesians 2. 1 John 4, 10 and 11. These are two verses. 10 gives us the proper gospel motivation for good works. And verse 10 gives us the proper response to the gospel. Look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This word propitiation means that Jesus stood between us and God as he hung on the cross and he was the wrath sponge the wrath absorber as God emptied out the cup of the punishment that we deserve for our sins into the body of Jesus so that we could be loved and forgiven by God. This is the gospel motivation. Verse 11, here's the proper response. Beloved, if God so loved us, that's the gospel that's considered the propitiation. If God has loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. This is a response. These are the good works and charity. Good works and charity towards the poor and helpless are not optional commands for us as Christ followers. Consider Titus 2, 13 and 14. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's how we used to live and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for what? Zealous for good works. Zealousness. This is a, an obsession a seriousness, a life that is consumed to respond to God's love for you in Christ by loving others, of course, with words, but also through tangible good works. This is the type of Christian that our city is not tired of running into. This is not the hypocrite that we are labeled by the world as. A church filled with people that are zealous for good works is a church that changes a city because living this way is compelling. Living this way is a visible, tangible display of the gospel that we believe. Um, for, for those of you guys who live in a neighborhood, who have a small yard or wherever you may be, uh, if, if your neighbors enjoy to barbecue or cook out or grill out, whatever you call it from where you're from, uh, you know the feeling when you step out in your yard and you smell the barbecue. It's like delicious and you're compelled. Uh, you ask, where in the world is that coming from? 
Who's, who's cooking that delicious food? Your senses compel you to demand a response, right? Who's cooking? Where is it coming from? Consider 2 Corinthians 2.15. Bear with me for a moment. I'm going somewhere with this. Listen. Christian, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, living selfless, sacrificial lives, zealous for good works, motivated by the gospel is so different than the way the world lives that it will demand an explanation from our neighbors, from our city. Where is that delicious smell coming from, if you will? In other words, why do you live this way? So selflessly, so sacrificially, for those who need your help. And there's the opportunity to share the message of Jesus, the only solution for the brokenness that is so tangible in our world, the one who every neighbor is longing for that doesn't know it yet, Jesus, the Savior. Pastor Jeff Vanderstolt says it this way, we should be living in a way that is so different than the world that it demands a Jesus explanation. So the question for us is, does the way you live your life demand a Jesus explanation? Or does it look just like your neighbors who don't know Jesus? These things should not be so. This is for me and for you to consider this morning. I spend a lot of time in coffee shops as I bump into you guys during the week a lot. Coffee snobs and connoisseurs don't freak out on me here, but I, at times I spend a lot of time in Starbucks. I'll sit there for hours studying or working on my computer. And one of the things that I hate the most about spending a lot of time in Starbucks is that when I leave, everything smells like burnt coffee. Have any of you guys experienced this? My watch, my hair, my skin, my backpack, my computer. I don't know how a computer can, can be saturated in the smell of coffee that way, but it's true. And if you bump into me, if I see my wife, you can tell where I've been. You can tell that I spent a lot of time at Starbucks in a coffee shop because of how I smell. <laughs> Church, do you smell like Jesus? You have to spend time with Jesus to smell like Jesus. But we are called to be the aroma of Christ, the display tangibly of the gospel to our neighbors and to our city of the gospel that we believe. Consider Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, for we are created in Christ Jesus. The word there is workmanship. We are God's creative expression and the apple of his eye for a reason. For what? Do you see it? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, which is crazy. Before creation was creation, he has created these good works that we should walk in them. So May we as a church family take this more seriously and realize that if our lives are not defined by living out the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in, then we are not spiritually healthy and something needs to be examined. Something is not right. What if we more frequently made this very practical step with our hearts and prayed in the morning before we left the house something along the lines of this? 
Father, help me not to walk past, but to walk into obediently the good works that you have prepared for me today. Every day when we leave the house, the classroom, the coffee shop, the workplace, the Bible study, the church service, the barbecue, whatever it may be, God has prepared good works for us to walk in so that we can be the aroma of Christ, the tangible display of the gospel to those we come in contact with. Father, help me to not walk past, but to walk obediently in the good works you have prepared for me today. Let's look at verses 40 through 43. Here's what Peter does. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Wow. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This should move us in some way. Tabitha is dead. She's not sleeping. She's not breathing. Her heart hasn't beaten for hours. Her body is cold, stiff, and lifeless. Peter kneels, he prays, and Jesus, the risen Jesus, resurrects Tabitha from the grave. Amazing. This really happened. This is a physical sign pointing to the spiritual truth that without the intervention and power of Jesus, we are all born spiritually dead as Tabitha was physically in our sin. Ephesians 2 calls us children of wrath, of punishment. Tabitha didn't help Jesus bring her back to life. Dead people don't drive themselves to the hospital. Dead means dead, and this applies to our spiritual condition without Jesus intervening. But this is why Jesus came, to intervene on behalf of us, because he loves us. The only way to be changed from spiritually dead enemy of God into forgiven, forgiven, and eternally beloved child of God is to be made spiritually alive by God through faith in Jesus as Savior. Where God grabs a hold of our stone cold, dead, lifeless hearts, like Peter grabbed a hold of Tabitha's hand, and he says, Arise. And he does throw so through Jesus. So we have two miraculous healings here with two very similar results. The paralyzed man is healed and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. The dead woman is brought back to life and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. The result of both healings gives us great insight into what's happening on a cosmic level here as the plan of God to rescue a people for his own possession and to glorify himself rightfully moves forward perfectly. And these healings also provide us with a commentary into what the point of the miraculous should always be. Because sadly, many of us in the Christian church, when we hear about the miraculous, including myself, we're so often cynical and we turn our noses up and we turn our backs around and in the discussion because of how much the miraculous has been abused 
and counterfeited in the church in order to manipulate people's loyalties and emotions and pocketbooks. This is terrible. Let us certainly be careful when it comes to stories of the miraculous, but not doubtful about the power of God to perform them or his compassion to do so. And when he performs the miraculous, the aim, the point, the end goal, the result is always to make his son, Jesus Christ, more clearly seen and himself more rightfully worshiped. God is jealous for his own glory and he should be. He is a miraculous, holy, wonderful, loving, powerful, amazing God. And God does not waste the miraculous for the sake of fanfare or the building up of personalities or kingdoms in this world. The miraculous is aimed at rescuing a people for God's possession. And this is always the end goal when it comes to the miraculous, including these physical healings. Miraculous physical healings also present us as Christians with a great mystery. There is a tension. Think about all of the sick, dying, and recently dead people in the towns of Joppa, Lydda, and Sharon. Let me stir the theological pot a minute for us. There's encouragement to be found here. Why didn't Jesus send Peter to these people to heal them as well? He certainly was capable to. Why did Jesus sometimes stick around for days and days healing everyone until there was nobody left to be healed standing in line? But other times he departed to spend time with the Father or to pray or to move on to the next town, leaving the sick and the dead behind. The best way I can answer this question for me and for us this morning is I have no idea. The healing power of Jesus is an uncomfortable mystery for me personally. I would never choose this passage to preach if it were up to me. These stories of healing bring to the forefront of my mind one area of tension on the long, long list of things about God that I just don't understand. And by the way, children of God, we can be honest with God about the things that we don't understand about him that don't settle well with us. Recently in the Old Testament that I've been reading, I've written in the margin, God, I hate this. I don't understand this. He is a big God. He is a father who desires openness and intimacy with us. He can handle our doubts, our fears, the things that we say, I hate this part of the Bible because I don't understand it. It actually increases our intimacy with him. He knows our hearts already. Why not just be honest? We don't have to pretend. He's such a good, good father. This is a, an uncomfortable tension for me, the miraculous healing. One of the reasons is because I'm a strategic thinker. I like to see a problem and diagnose it and for there to be prescriptive steps in order to achieve the solution. I've been in counseling every week for years and years of my life. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be in counseling. It has provided great health and growth and it's been wonderful, but at the same time, it's been terrible. I hate it a lot of the times, 
Because what I want from a counselor is to go into the office and for him to say, okay, we're going to meet for 12 weeks. And on week 12, I'm going to diagnose you and tell you what's wrong. I'm going to give you 17 steps to take in order to fix yourself. But my experience counseling has not been like this. It's been gray and foggy and emotional and introspective. And there's been no diagnosis and no steps in order for me to take to fix myself, though God has used it in tremendous ways to bring greater health. The mysterious healings of God are uh, much like this. They're gray and foggy, and faith is not something that you can grab a hold of. I would love for God to offer us a prescription today to lead us to miraculous healing. Perhaps it would sound like this. If you need healing, follow these seven steps. Pray this specific prayer. Kneel, hold your hand in the air in a, a certain way. Pray really hard. Say it like you mean it. Keep your eyes closed. If you open your eyes, you got to start all over again. Seven steps to miraculous healing. But we don't have this. There's nothing prescriptive or controllable to be learned from these instances of healing, except that Jesus is powerful enough to heal physically, to heal even from death, and that it never hurts to ask him for healing. Now, if you don't believe that God can heal you, if you don't believe that he cares to, then you shouldn't have a problem with miraculous healing. However, this is not what I believe. This is not what many of you believe. The word of God teaches us that God is sovereign over sickness and physical suffering, meaning he's in control of it. The word of God teaches us that he cares deeply when his children suffer, that Jesus hurts when we hurt, and that God is also 100% capable of healing anyone at any time, of anything, at any place. So here is one of the greatest theological tensions that Christ followers have been facing in the history of the Christian church, the problem of pain. The problem of suffering, the problem that God can help, but oftentimes he doesn't. Or if he does, he doesn't respond in the timeline or the manner in which we deem as the most loving and logical. Jesus cares deeply about us, our suffering. He is powerful to heal us physically, but sometimes he doesn't, and this is hard to swallow, and this is hard to understand. How can a good God allow his children to suffer in this way? We don't have to be scared of this question. He may not answer it in the way that we would like for him to answer it, but he answers it in a way, even this morning, that provides us with great comfort and hope in the midst of not understanding the perplexities of suffering. Consider Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. This is the voice of God speaking to us through the prophet Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The bottom line is that no matter how high your IQ is, no matter how expensive your education was, no matter how comprehensive your theological training is, there are things about God that we simply cannot understand. Things that he does that don't make sense. However, in the midst of the things we don't understand and the mysteries that test our faith and even may produce 
anger or disappointment or doubt at times, he has proven to us that he is a good and loving father, that he is in control and that we can trust him. And he has proven this for us in the most comprehensive of ways in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ to earth, to live, suffer, die, and beat death on our behalf to heal us spiritually and make us alive forever. Our perspective is so limited. We must humble ourselves before the Lord. Our perspective is so limited. It's it's similar to an infant or a toddler who cannot understand the intricacies of the decisions that the parents make that oftentimes lead to physical suffering in order to result in a greater good or a greater healing down the road. One of the most painful moments for me as a father thus far, we have two kids, four-year-old Arlie, our daughter, two-year-old Judah, warrior, our son. One of the most painful moments for me as a father is the first time that we took our daughter Arlie, a few months old, to the doctor to get her first shots. Parents, you guys remember this moment. Soon to be your new parents, you're going to experience it soon. It's terrible, okay? I, I'll, I'll never forget the nurse Remember this, babe? Holding her down on the table while she screamed in terror and pain. And the nurse administered the shot into her chunky little thigh. And she got a little princess band-aid on her thigh. I think we have a picture of just following. (laughs) See, she's holding the band-aid wrapper. She made it through. I will never forget the look in her eyes of sheer betrayal and utter confusion as she looked at me, daddy, and seemed to say, daddy, how could you let this happen? This hurts. Make it stop. Why are you allowing this? She didn't understand. All she knew was that it hurt, that she was in pain, and that daddy could make it stop if he wanted to, but he wasn't taking the pain away. My heart broke for her in her fear and pain. I absolutely hated every moment of it, but I cared more about the long-term good and prevention and health than relieving her from her temporary physical pain. When we are in pain, physically or emotionally, and we know that God can stop it if he wants to, When we cry out to him, why don't you do something, God? Don't you love me? How could you, daddy, take the pain away? And he doesn't. Because if this hasn't happened in your life yet, it's coming. When we feel this way in our suffering, may we fight and train ourselves to remember that his ways are not our ways that we cannot see or understand what he sees and understands, that he is good, that he is a loving, perfect father who hurts deeply for us and with us in our pain, but who cares more about the long-term good that our pain is prescribed for than our temporary fleeting relief of physical discomfort. Romans eight twenty-eight. We know that for those who love God, all things, including physical sickness, 
work together for good. Good for those who are called according to his purposes. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore, let those who suffer, let's stop there. What it doesn't say is, let those who suffer according to the fact that God is ticked off at you because you sinned a lot. It doesn't say let those who suffer according to the fact that God is far and cold and distant to remove and removed and can't help you anyways. It says let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. One of the most helpful resources outside of God's word for me and my great wrestling with the problem of pain is a book by a theologian named R.C. Sproul called Surprised by Suffering. would highly recommend it. It's a pretty easy and deeply encouraging read. And here we have a short excerpt from this book. This is R.C. Sproul's commentary on this verse from 1 Peter 4, 19. Consider this. Here, Peter erases all doubt about the question of whether it is ever the will of God that we should suffer. He speaks of those who suffer according to the will of God. This text means that suffering itself is part of the sovereign will of God. This passage shows us it is possible to be perplexed, but not in despair. Our suffering has a purpose. It helps us toward the end of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. Suffering is a crucible. As gold is refined in the fire, purged of its dross and impurities, so our faith is tested by fire. Gold perishes, our souls do not. Praise the Lord. We experience pain and grief for a reason. It is while we are in the fire that perplexity assails us. But there is another side of the fire. Praise the Lord. As the dross burns away, the genuineness of faith is purified unto the salvation of our souls. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. So we do not lose heart in our suffering, though our outer self, this body of flesh, day by day is wasting away. Our inner self, our spirit is being renewed day by day by Jesus Christ. For this light and momentary affliction, I know it doesn't feel light and momentary. Arlie and her shots didn't feel light and momentary to her, but it is. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, pointing us to the second resurrection from the grave where we will pass from this broken life and these broken bodies into eternity as Christ followers. <laughs> and we will see Jesus and we will be clean forever. And there will be no sin. There will be no heartbreak. There will be no tragedy, no tears, no physical suffering. We will be made perfect and we will eternally party and enjoy Jesus and celebrate and see one another and live in the glory that is the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus, our Savior. May the great love and sovereign plan of God, our Father, comfort us in the mystery and confusion that is physical suffering, however long, however painful, however life-threatening it may be. 
Physical suffering often feels like our greatest adversary because it's so tangible and undeniable. We can't shake it when we're in the middle of it. But we have an infinitely greater need for healing beyond the physical. Throughout the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus, God uses illustrations of physical sickness to teach us about spiritual truths. Consider Luke 5, 30 through 32, where Jesus does this for us. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with those people? Tax collectors, sinners, dirty, unholy. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here Jesus interprets his own illustration, explaining that he came not primarily to heal us physically, but to take care of our greatest sickness, our spiritual sicknesses of sin and death. And as we come in just a moment to celebrate the Lord's table, to celebrate the work of Jesus on our behalf through communion, and we take broken pieces of bread to remember his broken body hanging on the cross, and we dip it in the wine or the juice to remember the perfectly cleansing, sacrificial blood that makes us saints in the eyes of God. May we be reminded that it's easy for Jesus to heal physically. He is the author and sustainer of life and all creation. And the Bible says in this very moment, he is holding all things in the universe together, including the physiology of our bodies. It's easy for him to heal physically, but it was not easy for him to earn our spiritual healing. It was harder and more terrifying and more horrific than we'll ever know for him on the cross to be crushed by God as our propitiation, our wrath absorber, our punishment sponge so that we could be loved. Jesus physically and spiritually suffered the wrath of God on the cross to heal us of our greatest afflictions of sin and death so that he could say to us eternally, your sins are forgiven. Let us be impressed with Jesus in every way this morning, including his power to heal physically. But may we be astounded and dumbfounded and in all that leads to worship that we have been made spiritually alive forever and ever healed by Jesus and his cross. Let me pray for us. We'll invite you guys to come for communion when you're ready. We have two stations in the back and then we'll have two in the front. Let's pray that he continues his work. Jesus, help us not check out here. Help this not be religious monotony. Help us not be glad the sermon's over and think about lunch or what do we have to do today, but help us stay in this moment and help us believe what we've heard. Help us believe and be encouraged by what the broken bread and the blood and the the juice and wine represents. Help us believe that we've been made clean, that our sins are forgiven that you're powerful enough to heal our physical suffering, but when you don't, that we can trust you, that you're working all things together for the good of those who love you, and we love you. Help us trust you more. In Christ's name, we pray together. Amen.